Welcome to the Metal Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. We've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We sat down with uh, Space Tango, who is a company here in Lexington that is just wild to think about the fact that they're in Lexington in the first place. So they work with SpaceX. They are in the business of space. They send stuff up to the space station, and they're located just right downtown Lexington. So uh, it's just crazy to think about that happening in Kentucky, and you know, not many people uh, know about that, I yeah. would imagine. Yeah, that was one of the coolest parts of the interview. If you're able to go and watch the YouTube video, because during the interview behind Twyman, there's actually a live stream of a mission of theirs in the International Space Station. So you're able to literally see what's going on in the International Space Station from their ground control here in Lexington, Kentucky. And like Evan said, it's one of those things that you just wouldn't realize is happening here in Lexington. Also in the video, you'll be able to see what Space Tango is actually sending up into space. So sitting beside Twyman is the actual box that they put these experiments in and they're automating these science experiments, whether it's they're studying um, the effects of microgravity on on human cells or on how a a plant grows or all sorts of different things that we discussed in this interview. All of that is happening on an automated basis within that uh, little cube lab, as they call them. So again, uh, they're, they're dealing in space, which is something that you don't typically associate businesses that work in Kentucky doing. Uh, they have offices all over the country, but the majority of their employees are working here in Lexington. So yeah, he's actually going down to Cape Canaveral next week. Yeah, for I think yeah, a launch re- is coming back. Yeah, they're receiving, receiving, a, receiving a launch. So. Yeah, that's that's so cool, man. Yeah. I, asked him, I asked him if he was a space entrepreneur. He said he doesn't call himself that, but <laughs> I'm going to refer to him as a space yeah. entrepreneur. But it was a cool conversation. We covered everything from you know how the company got started here in, here in Kentucky, what does the general space industry look like, what is SpaceX doing with you know satellite internet, and Starlink, which is really exciting because, you know, as, as you wrote in the past, that's a lot of implications for Kentucky. We talked about in the future of space commercialization in general. So what that means is, you know, several times throughout history, the government has slowly given space up to private industry. And so what that means is a private company can come in and now work in space. Uh, and before it's only accessible to government officials and to government organizations like NASA but they're starting to open that up to more companies like Space Tango. And Space Tango is really interesting because, I mean, he he talked about this several times in the interview, you know, they have kind of a a lead. You know, they were one of the first companies to get this kind of approval, and now they're taking all their learnings and applying that to other technologies and other platforms, which is super exciting because early early mover advantage is, is huge in new industries, especially space, because, you know, a lot of the experiments they do just can't be done on Earth. And so it takes sending stuff up to space and failing and iterating in space before you can actually get some some good data. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's super you know exciting that that's happening in Kentucky, uh, but very again very exciting conversation. All right, guys. So before we dive into these interviews, we just want to take a second to highlight our sponsors. They're going to be sponsoring season four of the Middle Tech Podcast. Uh, so the first one we want to go over is Land Betterment Corporation. So they're going to be sponsoring, like I said, all of season four, and they're working hard to bring sustainable developments to eastern Kentucky, places that need it so badly. What they're doing 
is taking old and abandoned uh, coal mines and strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place that can help support those communities. So definitely go and check them out. Their website is landbetterment.com. They're doing some awesome things in this region. Yeah. Next, we've got uh, Brandon Johnson. So I've personally worked with Brandon Johnson. Uh, he is a lawyer and attorney that works with uh, businesses, specifically you know, startups in this region. Uh, he is from Kentucky. He's from Fordsville, Kentucky. He got his law degree from the University of Louisville. Uh, he's worked with Papa John's, Louisville Slugger, Instagram influencers that are making millions of dollars, real estate investors, you name it. Uh, but he loves what he does. He really loves helping small businesses, helping entrepreneurs get the right footing. Uh, because one of the most important parts of starting your business, if you're serious about it, is getting an attorney, making sure that all of your documents, incorporation documents, uh, operating agreements, shareholder agreements, things of those nature are in check. And Brandon is there to help you with that. And again, I've worked with him uh, and he does a great job. He makes it fun. He's very personable and I enjoy uh, working with him. So we appreciate him for, for sponsoring this season. All right, go ahead and dive into it. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. We've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We're recording out of Space Tango's offices in downtown Lexington. We've been in a lot of cool spots, uh, and we've been in Louisville. We've been in Moorhead, mostly out of Awesome Inc., though. This has got to be one of the coolest spots, and for those of you watching the video uh, on YouTube, you should be able to see the backdrop here behind Twyman. Yeah. Uh, he's got some awesome... Uh, what is this, a control center? How do you, how do you mission guys control? Yeah, this mission is a mission control, control for us. Uh, you know, I'll explain a little bit more. I, I can see the reflection off the, the, the windows that are behind you all. So you're seeing on one side live streams from the space station, and you can actually see the Dragon 2, or maybe two of the Dragon 2 cargo vehicles docked to the space station. And then on the other side is a, is a recorded video of one of the, Victor Glover, one of the U.S. astronauts on orbit, removing some of our equipment that, you know, here we're recording. That equipment's going to be coming home on December 10th, or excuse me, January 10th. So just a few days, I think, after people might hear this. So uh, that's what you're looking at if you're if you're watching this. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Let's uh, before we get into Space Tango and what people are looking at there, uh, let's dive into you and your background. Yeah. So sure. high level, briefly go over where you're from, education, mm -hmm. and professional background. You know, up until Space Tango. Yeah. Sure. So. Born and raised in Kentucky, I'm from Bardstown, grew up on a, a cattle and tobacco farm in, in Bardstown, just outside of Bardstown. So where, you know, people listening, I think most people will know, but that's where all the bourbon distilleries are. So that was certainly something that I grew up around. Now, the bourbon industry really took off after I graduated high school, but it's been fun to see that. And a lot of my friends work in that industry. Grew up on, like I said, grew up on a farm. I have three brothers and we're all actually mechanical engineers. So for any uh, intrepid UK students on the maybe listening to this, there's a brick in the UK courtyard there, engineering courtyard with a, the Clements brothers on there. I actually have one cousin also who, who, who graduated around the same time, but we all work in different areas. And, and growing up on a farm, you know, my dad uh, worked in agriculture, but very much had the engineering kind of spirit. So learned from him. And actually, my, both my parents ended up eventually starting businesses, you know, later in their career. So got a little bit of that entrepreneurial, learned, saw that from them. Uh, but went to UK, you know, kind of followed my brothers, uh, you know, had dreams of having a track career, um, track and cross country career, but realized I could run for the rest of my life. I didn't need to be, uh, get a scholarship for that. So ended up going to UK doing engineering and, you know, was, was an okay student. I'm going to be honest, wasn't great, but, you know, got through all the classes, but really, 
you know, it's funny. There are certain moments that really change the trajectory of your life. And, and one for me was Jim Lump, Dr. Jim Lump, who's actually still at UK. He gave a talk in a mechanical engineering class I, get, I was in about a space group uh, that was at the time called Kentucky Space that was working on a satellite. Um, I followed him right after class up and asked, I was interested, kind of thinking it was a group that met for pizza every couple of weeks to talk about space and stuff like that. It ended up being a job and kind of the rest is history. And, um, you know, I, who, who knows what would have happened if I hadn't followed him that, that one day, but that, that was really the, um, you know, and it was a quick 10 minute talk, followed him and, and that kind of led to to this. So had you been really interested in space growing up or was it just one of those things that when you got to college and you saw that talk? Yeah, it's actually funny. It was actually kind of, I was very interested young when I was younger. Um, you know, Apollo 13 was a great, uh, movie to see how realistic it was and talking to my parents that that actually happened. You know, that wasn't sci-fi. If I could, I would love to, but I had an, you know, English is not my strongest uh, subject and was certainly not in high school. And I read like the space section of the encyclopedia in my English teacher's class probably once a week, just kind of seeing Because again, reading that being 40 years removed from the moon missions at that point, knowing that we did that, but it seemed like sci-fi to me was so cool. But then never really pursued it in any way in college or anything else like that, thinking that you could do it because the space world we know now didn't really exist. SpaceX is obviously the greatest example of that and didn't really pursue it. And then that opportunity came and we'll talk maybe a little bit about the company formation, but it was never an epiphany, you know, and I think that's a common theme about Space Tango is um, it's, you know, it's, it's hard, consistent work to build a company. Um, that's, that's, that's true in a lot of ways, but really my career, it was never one of these eureka moments or anything like that go into and and lead this into space tango but go sure. into the history of space in kentucky because you know yeah. Kentucky's obviously when somebody thinks of kentucky they're probably not gonna think space no but no there's not there's not a ton um go into that yeah you know the little bit that i know is that actually at uk they had and i don't know the exact history so i'm sure somebody will will comment this when this comes out but that the university had a pretty large life-size centrifuge that they used for early uh, hypergravity testing uh, in the early NASA days that I believe they used some of the primates. I don't think it was Ham who was like the first primate the U.S. sent up, but some of those primates I think actually were tested there at, in the what was the Warner Grin Biomedical Engineering Building that has now been torn down, and I believe there's a new science building there now. I, I actually kind of discovered that fact much after we got started. The space history here that has really kind of formed what is worked on in, in Kentucky, particularly in the Lexington kind of east area, was the Kentucky Science and Technology Corporation about 15 years ago started a program called Kentucky Space that was led by uh, Chris Kimmel, who uh, is a co-founder of Space Tango and a mentor and, and you know, a great friend of mine and somebody who this wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here without, without his mentorship and, and working to help start this company. Uh, but they had started Space Tango, I believe, or uh, what was called Kentucky Space about 2006. And it was a coalition of different universities working on space projects, basically just to get students in Kentucky working on stuff. And it was good timing because CubeSats were just coming out, which are very, very, you know, for those who don't know, are satellites about the size anywhere from a, from a tissue box to maybe like a small microwave. And what that idea, that what that was, was taking satellites instead of being these vehicle-sized pieces of equipment that really only companies 
could spend hundreds of million dollars to launch. What if we just went two factors uh, magnitude down to build them for students? And that has become its own industry that we can kind of talk about. But Kentucky Space was getting started at that time. And that is that lab I talked about with Dr. Lump, Jim Lump. And an equivalent was one at Moorhead State with Ben Malfris. And they built the Space Science Center, which has become its own um, entity. And they've made a name for themselves. And we've hired students from there. And Ben, again, has also been a, a, a great mentor and friend in that. And worked through that Kentucky Space program. Kentucky Space started to kind of fizzle out about 2013, 2014 due to a variety of reasons, but we'd launched a couple of CubeSats. The Space Science Center has done great. You know, UK Engineering has gone, I believe now has an aerospace engineering uh, uh, major, or if they don't, I think that it's coming soon. And the idea for Space Tango, we kind of had worked on some space station stuff earlier and kind of pursued that idea. And over time, the ambition kind of grew. We saw where we were, that it was a unique idea. And then the ambition grew to, to kind of what it is today and then where we want to go. So, Perfect. you know, we're really very much in the first, you pick your analogy, baseball innings book. We're very much very early on in the history of this company and what we want to do. And I think as a, as a society or as a nation, what is going to become kind of the space economy over the next decade? It's going to be um, pretty interesting to see. Absolutely. So let's transition that into sure. how do you describe what Space Tango does yeah. and, and what the mission of Space Tango is? Yeah, so really what we're looking to do is utilize the unique environment of space, particularly microgravity, which we'll talk about what that is, as this new platform for research and manufacturing. And how we do that is we basically build with what you can, what's going on behind me. To utilize that is, takes a unique skill set. And a lot of that is automation. A lot of that is building equipment that can operate through a number of different gravity fields. So 1G three or four G's during launch, zero G for a month or two, and then a couple G's coming back home. And that is really difficult to do for like a life science payload. Uh, if you're trying to keep a stem cell culture or a tissue chip or some other things like that alive. And so that's kind of how we accomplish that. But really what we're trying to do is build the equipment to utilize this unique environment to create products uh, that obviously are for the betterment of humanity. And so like an analogy that we think about that we, we kind of communicate this to is as you think about, you know, human history, every time human humanity has really harnessed a new physics medium or environment, there's been technology that's technology has been based off that. And then there's been capital creation. So you can think about electromagnetism, which has created radar, wireless signals that have created really the digital world that we know today. Electricity obviously has created the modern world. Vacuum. Sounds doesn't sound very difficult. Vacuum is just taking air or a medium out of a volume, but allows you to, to create refrigeration, uh, which allows you to store vaccines or food or other things like that. And so gravity is just one of those, those mediums. I mean, we know it, obviously, and um, humanity knows it because it's the only force we've ever really known and interacted with. But when you remove gravity, it just creates a new platform, kind of a new, obviously, environment, literally, uh, that things interact differently. And so you can, you can use that to an advantage for layer deposition work, stem cell pluripotency, some of these other things that, that we'll talk about. And, you know, we really just are focused on working with our partners on utilizing this to create things that could never have been created. And it's a lot of fun because it, you're doing cutting edge science, you're working with great world-class teams building stuff that, you know, the ideas are generated in this building, usually built 
downstairs and then we get to watch them a couple days later on the on the screens behind me so but that's really what we're you know what we're trying to do here and for us as as we as we grow we're we're, we're trying to diversify those use cases that what we kind of call applications uh diversify that no, those number of applications for kind of industrial uses build the equipment to enable that and then use use or develop our own the infrastructure that's being developed with it whether it's a SpaceX or a rocket lab or all these other kind of infrastructure players uh, use them to to really build out this ecosystem. Yeah, we were we were here prior to this interview, and uh, we got a tour, which yeah. was awesome. It was really cool to walk through here and, and look at what you guys are doing in this office right downtown Kentucky. And when you drive by, you'd have no idea. Yeah, right. It's just such an inconspicuous building. You yeah, say, what is going on right here in Lexington? That's what I was thinking when I when I left this place. Um, and we were shown, you know, these these cubes that you guys are building. So yeah, yeah. I want you to talk about those. And then earlier you mentioned, you know, microgravity and talk about how those cubes are harnessing and allowing you guys to use this yeah. microgravity, as you call it, as a platform. Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting thing in kind of sales and stuff like that because so we, we basically develop, they're called cube labs and basically all the photos you'll see, they're metal boxes to the to, on the exterior. And um, the reason they're built that way is obviously just to, for ease of the astronauts using them. Astronaut time is valued anywhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars an hour, uh, fully oh. burdened. Um, now, obviously, we don't pay that. NASA pays that. But if you took the value of all their training and divided it in half, so we want to minimize astronaut time. So basically, we build these autonomous boxes that have an experiment. And if you're doing cell culture work, you're keeping a cell line warm at thirty-seven C at body temperature. You're maintaining typically a gas concentration. You're feeding it with a media that typically has to be cold before it goes into the, the incubation part. Typically, they like to save the, med- the food after it's, after it's consumed uh, or the media called effluent to do analysis. Then you typically want to image that. And so you've got to fit all that in a box that goes in a bag or goes in a different locker, flies up and basically just gets a power and internet connection and then runs autonomously. And so it's that kind of autonomy, designing for that autonomy is is the di- is the difficult part and you know one thing that we really learned and and space tango kentucky space really got its start as kind of the maker movement was kind of hitting its peak a little bit in the sense that it was when everyone thought 3d printers would be everywhere and lows and everything else like that and arduinos were really coming out so you think okay i could put these three or four things together and create whatever and we started there but you you quickly learn that making something that can work for 10 minutes is very different than something that can work for you know, a month and be randomly powered off due to something and come back up. And so that was some of the stuff we had to learn in, in our early phase. But the cube labs are for us, they're, they're basically, they're the experiment modules. So they, they look kind of boring on the outside, but there's a lot packed in on the inside. And, and something that we're trying to do with our media and our messaging is to show what's the complexity of, of what's going on on those insides. But the other thing is once you get in zero gravity, the best example Best two examples of trying to design around are one, bubbles don't sound like a big deal, but are uh, a huge pain for us in fluid lines because on Earth uh, there's density and and bubbles will float to the top of whatever vessel they're typically in. In zero gravity, there is no density. And and so those bubbles don't go to where you think they're going to go. And so you have to be either clever about getting them trapped into high surface area energy areas um, to, to hold them so that they don't clog something or if they do clog something getting them out of there one way or another so so bubbles are a big one and then the other is heat generation particularly 
If you have heat generation in space in a vacuum, it's all radiative heat transfer. But in, in the space station where there's air, uh, basically heat just generates and creates a bulb of hot air. So you have to have, you know, kind of forced airflow. So there's all these different things that you have to design. It's on Earth, it's not on Earth, and it's, and it, and it's back at the same time. Okay, so how do you design and iterate? I guess do you have micro. There's microgravity stations on Earth, right? That we can yeah. create. So uh, you, no, no. no. Okay, so, so how do you how do you iterate on this? Yeah. product like without setting it to. You basically it. have to. Yeah, oh, okay. and, and, and so that's the that's the hard part, but that's the that's the part. You know, we we almost see value in the complexity because and it, and it's interesting because as we talk to investors or customers or everything else like that, we talk about building out this what we're trying to build. Uh, in, within Space Tango is this combination of this, this science with these use cases, these applications I talked about, but then also this repository of kind of the, of, of the engineering knowledge of how do you design these systems in, in zero gravity. So there are zero gravity analogs. So, you know, you can work from about a second or two with drop towers. Um, actually, one of our employees here is from Portland State. Um, Portland State actually in their engineering building has a large drop tower that goes through the engineering building. And it's it's literally you just drop stuff. And so you get that kind of, you know, the roller coaster feeling, right, of going over a, a hill in a car. You drop something, you get a little bit of microgravity. A lot of that's for fluid studies. How do fluids kind of behave in a zero gravity environment? So you've got that. That can give you a few seconds. A little bit work can be done there. There are really nice drop towers. I think there's one in Germany that's a hundred and something meters tall that they actually evacuate all the air out of before you drop something, things like that. But that is not the time scale that you would have for any type of things that we're looking at. You can do the vomit comet, which is basically for space nerds will probably know that, but that's how they shot uh, Apollo 13. Was it's basically an airplane that basically does parabolas, so it go you know goes up pretty high and then does like a 45 degree angle down and you know with engines on and basically dives towards the ground. I think they stay between 18 and 30 thousand feet, so you don't get too close. But they basically just do that, and that gives you about 30 seconds. So that's the one where you see people and they're like in a plane. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, they start floating. Yeah, that only gives you about 30 seconds. It's repeatable. It only gives you about 30 seconds. You've now got some suborbital opportunities. Uh, Blue Origin has one. That gives you about three or four minutes um, on the new Shepard rocket. And and there's value in each one of these steps. But that gives you about three or four minutes. And then there's... But the only way to have kind of microgravity for any long duration of time, you have to orbit a celestial body to basically... Once you're in orbit, the centrifugal force equals the force of gravity and, and you're in free fall. And, and so really the space station or, or some sort of spacecraft that you would develop is the only way you could get any type of long-term uh, microgravity. And, and that's one of the things, you know, we talk about, you know, as we, we go out and talk to people, there's space and then there's microgravity and those are two separate but interrelated concepts. So space is basically an altitude. So you could go straight up and be in space, but if you're not in orbit, you just fall right back down. If you go up to the height of the space station, the altitude of the space station, gravity is 98 or 99% the same force. It'll just pull you right back down. So that's why when you watch rocket launches, they go up for a little while and then they go sideways for most of it because they're getting horizontal velocity to stay in orbit. And that staying in orbit is what is what gives you the microgravity. Um, which is what we're trying to um, capitalize on. So space to us is a means to an end. We're, we, we just need, you just so happen to have to be in space to maintain microgravity. That's kind of the differentiation 
for us. We still get to be on cool rockets and stuff like that. So. <laughs> So one of the things that popped into my head when we were thinking about doing this interview and, yeah. and talking to you guys is the logistics of, of getting to space. You know, yeah. we're just now figuring out how to really perfect logistics here on Earth. You know, right. Amazon figuring out how to get a package from point A to point B. Talk a little bit about the logistics of getting one of those cube labs yeah. from Lexington, Kentucky to the International Space Station, because I know it's like you got to connect the dots of putting it on a SpaceX rocket. Right. Then you've got to actually get it on the International Space Station. And one of the other questions I have that kind of goes along with that is, is it as simple as just having the funding to do it or is there a lot of regulation you yeah. have to go through? What does is, what is that part of it look like? Yeah, so there's two answers there. Um, almost three. So so one is how do you get something on a, on a vehicle like that and use the space station? And, and this goes back and give credit to KSTC and Kentucky Space. How we got started was NASA was beginning to commercialize, kind of quote unquote, about 10, 10 years ago. And the Kentucky Space and then Space Tango were able to get Space Act agreements, which are basically these agreements to say you can use the space station for commercial purposes, to start to build companies. And if you think about a national laboratory, the space station is a national lab. There are other national labs, uh, I believe Sandia, Oak Ridge, you know, mostly around kind of nuclear, that are you know, government-only facilities that they have kind of opened up for commercial uses. So the space station is one of those. And so we got one of those, built a relationship with NASA, to be able to even go to the space station. So that's kind of the first part. You know, the second part there is uh, it's really the safety verification and planning. And so uh, we have an office in Houston, um, in Houston, Texas, just across from the Johnson Space Center that does a lot of that. So we say, and I'll use the mission that's kind of going on behind me, SpaceX 21 as an example. All right, we're going to fly a tissue chip system. That's going to take six to 12 months of coordination with NASA because it needs to go up in a powered locker. It needs to be moved fairly quickly onto the space station, plugged into data, plugged into the power and data of the space station. It needs to run for a couple of weeks. It needs to then be moved to a freezer. That freezer needs to be moved back into the Dragon. It needs to come home. And so it takes a lot of that coordination. And there's systems built up that were moved from the space shuttle onto the space station that are how you kind of track all that. But it, it takes a lot of coordination because... Everything is obviously to the to the millimeter and to the gram of what's up, what's in there, and what's not. So there's a, there's a process there, and then there is the kind of the last part to that is the actual like physically taking the thing. So there's a lot of engineering design, prototyping, and things like that. And then for uh, to use the tissue chip example, we go down to Cape Canaveral. We actually have laboratories about four miles from the launch pad. We load. The cube labs actually in sterile biosafety hoods because, you know, they have to be done sterile so we don't get any infection, um, uh, in bacteria or virus infection of the, of the samples. They're typically locked. We typically close them up about 24 hours before launch. They go into the facilities about a couple hours after that. We do a final wait and CG. And then this last mission, just using it, we, me and another employee actually had to go out on the crew arm and get to put it into the vehicle, into the into the capsule, and check it out and everything else like that, which was as cool as it sounds. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. So uh, that was like 12 hours before launch, and then they close up the door and, and it launches. So hopefully I haven't scared anybody off in that whole process. But it, it you know, sum it up, it's a lot of work. It's fun to watch the process um, and, and understand the process so that as we design things, we get smarter about it. And, and, and certainly learn from it. But as I was telling you all before this got started, that mission SpaceX 21 will be coming home in a couple of days. And basically we'll be getting that hardware back, breaking everything apart, 
taking the samples, sending them to customers all across the country, and then bringing that hardware back here and recycle it for the next flight. So, wow. So tell us a little bit about the types of experiments you're doing in those cube labs. What kind of things are you sending up? Who are your clients? What are you finding for them? So there's a couple, I break it down into a couple of different, there's kind of the types of science and then there's kind of the, the, where the motivation, where they're go, where they're going in the long term, and so there's kind of what I would call as blue ocean science, which is what happens to this when this when it goes to space, effectively. Mm. <laughs> and we've done a lot of work, actually, really cool work in plant science. We did uh, something actually with the International Space Station National Lab in Marvel, which was kind of cool around Guardians of the Galaxy, basically growing Groot in space, which was kind of fun. We we actually did some beer malting, growing malt or do beer uh, malting with Budweiser. Got to work with Budweiser on that, which was, which was pretty interesting. Did they view those as actual like science experiments or was that a marketing? You know, um, Marvel was a kind of marketing. It was, it was kind of STEM based. The Budweiser's actually done uh, some releases about the work that they've done. Some of it was marketing. The first beer on Mars, you know, as humanity expands out, they've basically they've taken out the yeah. hall with them, but they've also, you know, there was a science part. I mean, the people we worked with were all the science, all scientists in their in their barley research division hmm. so it was actually very our day-to-day interactions were all uh science-based very cool yeah and, and 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 really cool team and learned a lot with them we've done some microbiology with different bacterias looking we had actually a educate like a group of like i think eighth graders uh do a research paper on a fungi they flew with us that was shown as a good radiation shield so we had a petri dish kind of split and we had radiation sensors on either end, on either side, and we grew fungi on one side and none on the other. And they they actually got some some cool research out of that. So that's kind of the the research for research sake. Um, and we and we also have some other ones with you know the kind of academic level NIH NSF's funded work there, looking at different tissue chips, looking at different more complex work, looking at like living systems, like human living systems, like a lung on chip. We've got a brain on chip project. We've got a bone cartilage uh, project. A lot of different ones like that, just to see what's the human response in different scenarios. Because you're only limited on how much you can do with the the actual astronauts. Yeah, and just to hit on that, what is a chip exactly for those? Yeah, so so yeah, I've mentioned that a couple of times. So that is almost a two technologies building on top of each other. So there's kind of the space flight automation, life science automation that we're doing. There is broadly kind of what are called tissue chips. Um, or organs on chips, uh, which is a whole nother field that we don't we don't do, but we work with many many groups that do. Uh, one of those being uh, a, a company called Emulate out of Boston that build um, organ on chips, and and they're they're one can be a, a a brain chip or a lung chip that are the cells of that particular type are grown in these small uh, devices. You do flow media, or you you actually can stretch them like like mimicking like human breath. So that they, instead of growing kind of these 2D cultures of a particular cell line in a bio lab, you're actually emulating what they would, fu- how they would function in the body, giving them shear stresses as blood or, or different fluids are flowing by them like they are in a living system. And so these organ chips have had a lot of research, both terrestrially and extraterrestrial, you know, in space, because you can mimic more complex living systems particularly human living, living systems to do long duration space flight, pharma, uh, pharmacological studies, other things like that. So that's been a big focus of, of the NIH and, and the, uh, a little bit the NSF on those areas. And when so. you're studying these, these tissues, these human tissues, are you looking for 
uh, you'd mentioned a few reasons, but what are the other primary reasons, um, disease and yeah. possibly, I saw one, I read one of the articles around aging. Yep. Talk about, you know, what kind of discoveries are possible. Are being possible made. there. Yeah. yeah. So, so in those areas, it, it's looking at accelerated aging. Zero gravity has kind of shown that you can, it, it accelerates some of the stressors in the body that, that accelerate aging. Obviously, because of orbit, actually, astronauts do get technically younger. They due to relativity, but it's only like a couple microseconds. So that that's negated clearly. The, you can also do some pharmacological, you know, because again, with the astronauts, you're very limited. They don't want to get too risky with the astronauts. You don't want them getting sick or doing anything that's a, a little bit crazy. So you can do a few things, be a little bit more cavalier, um, if you will, in some of the research because obviously it's no, no, no person's going to be any, any way affected. So you've got aging. There's quite a bit of work, obviously, in, in osteoporosis and because they have such a, a loss of bone density. Astronauts do. They actually have to work out quite a bit when they're in orbit uh, because uh, like any stressor, when there's no load on their bones, their bones actually weaken quite quickly, So, which has been an avenue for osteoporosis drug research and other things like that. We, we're not working on the, on the, on the osteoporosis part, more on the advanced aging, um, some work in the blood-brain barrier, how zero gravity affects that, and some others. Um, very cool. Yeah, and, th and those really fall under, again, that that kind of, uh, again, very much research that, that very much could move into kind of the the, the development side of R&D. And then we have customers that are more on the development side or what we would almost kind of ca call pilot manufacturing side, where in its most, in its simplest form is you're taking a raw material up and the manufacturing process requires zero gravity for one reason or another. And then it's something of value is coming back. And obviously it's got to be a pretty high value to justify the, the, the arc of spaceflight. But to go back to kind of the motivation of the companies to develop a portfolio of those applications, of those high value uses. And, and uh, we were very lucky. We got actually some, some, some NASA funding with, with just an incredible group of partners to work on a couple of applications like that. One of those is a group called Lamb Division that uses a particular protein that is a very efficient uh, proton pump and a layering process that we've worked on with them to create a retinal implant is actually what they make. Uh, Lamb Division, is, you know, they're out of Connecticut. And that technology, uh, we're working with them on using that for a couple of other different technologies. And what you need is you need extremely even layering of these of these particular proteins. And on Earth, the proteins settle out of the a beaker or whatever container they're in. You need a still homogeneous fluid for that layering. And how do you get a still homogeneous fluid? You get rid of density, which is you get rid of gravity. And so while that seems kind of, you know, that's a simple, you can walk through that. That environment, that zero gravity allows for this even layering. And then that has to occur so many times. And, and you know, it, it, and it's a great example, obviously, I, you know, potentially could restore eyesight. So we're working with them working with a group out of Cedars-Sinai, looking at maintaining pluripotency so uh, of stem cells. So stem cells are obviously talked about for a lot of applications, but are effectively cells of you at kind of day zero, if you want to think about it, that you can differentiate into a number of different cell types. And pluripotency is basically maintaining that zero state. And as it's been kind of told to us, obviously don't work in the industry, but as we've worked with the group at Cedars and others, um, as you culture these in different vessels, as they proliferate, gravity pulls on them, they settle somewhere, that creates a stressor, and they begin to differentiate. And what you're looking at is, is maintaining a large kind of bank, for lack of a better term, of these, of these of pluripotent stem cells from a particular patient 
for use in treatments that they're looking at, whether it's using gene editing or other things like that for, for potential kind of next generation treatments. So it's really where zero gravity comes in is it's kind of creating, providing the stock um, for that. And, and there's a lot of work in that. I mean, there is years or a decade or more of work in, in even that back end of those applications, but it's really interesting to work with that group. And then working with Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine out of San Diego, which is a great collaboration of, of teams there working on, um, you know, similar, similar things in the stem cell area, stem cell and, and uh, regenerative medicine areas. And so we're really working with those groups, we're actually working with them earlier today on the reactors, the type of supply chain that they need for some of these applications. Um, and so you can kind of see that spectrum of between what I call blue ocean research to some of these really complex research and development or even pilot manufacturing uh, applications. And we've worked with groups that have done fiber optic cable, working with a group on recellularization, actually liver recellularization, which was really interesting. That was very early. So if you're a science or uh, technology nerd, I mean, it's really the, the spectrum of things uh, that, that, that we get to work on. And it's one of these that you have now that space flight and the opportunity to go to space is much lower. Now people's ideas start to generate, the kind of this ideation begins to happen. Some of these things that you wouldn't think are realistic are now starting to pop up. And, and uh, it's a lot of fun to, to actually get to interact with that and eventually see some of these things fly and operate. And, and one of those, the, the retinal implant one, will be flying in about five or six weeks. Um, so we'll be watching that on, on these screens here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and you said it there, the, the cost of getting into space, there's more opportunity for it. People yeah. come with more ideas. And I think that's what really is getting me excited about the future yeah. is the opportunity for more businesses like yourself to pop up where they're commercializing space. So I kind of want to take this and talk about the business aspect of, yeah. of running a, a space company more or less. So uh, to start, talk a little bit about where the funding for the company first came from when you guys first started and where the revenue for the company comes yeah, from. Yeah, sure. I talked a little bit about kind of Kentucky space transitioning um, into uh, Space Tango. And, and um, so we were started under the Kentucky Science and Technology Corporation. We got a, and started to get a few customers, kind of early education customers. We raised a little bit of money, kind of local friends and family money. And that really got us going. And we actually were able to kind of make the hop from kind of the blue, you know, kind of the blue ocean research area into kind of that next phase of the NIH NSF work. And that really allowed us to become self-sustaining for the last couple of years. And so uh, we only raised that kind of friends and family round of money. Um, and we've, we've been lucky. We've been a profitable company for a couple of years. And, you know, we've, we've basically doubled in terms of revenue and, and headcount and a lot of other things for the last two or three years. What is the headcount currently at? I think we're at, because uh, I signed some letters today, so I think we're at 25 or 30. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And we've got people in La Jolla, California, Houston, Cape Canaveral, um, and DC and Washington, DC. So most people are here in Lexington. Um, I, you know, I'd say 20 to 25 of the, of them are, are, are here in Lexington, but we, we are pretty distributed and, and that's something you have to have in something that's, that's obviously kind of hard science and space space. You need people in those, in those centers. Um, just, you have to have people on the ground for, for us to be successful. I don't know if you can you can give this number, but what is the just entry level price with you all to even get something up there? Yeah, so for us right now, it's probably twenty five thousand. Okay. Um, yeah, just and part of that it might not sound hard to say, let's say, fly and grow a plant up in space, but the amount of testing and the amount of iteration and the parts and all that other stuff just. And then the other thing is is 
one thing that we're trying to do as we mature as a company is really focus on these on some of these applications. And so there's an opportunity cost because there is, as the commercialization of space occurs more and more, pricing has to occur more in, in the supply chain. Right now, as part of the National Laboratory and part of the research that we do, you're not paying for every part of the supply chain. And so for, you know, you're taking the spot of something else, right? And so you've got to price that in there. So, you know, for us, it starts from 25 and then goes up from there. Yeah. You just, you were just talking briefly there about the commercialization of space in general. So yeah. let's, let's transition from, from Space Tango to that because we do want to touch on that just, yeah, sure. you know, just for a little while because it, it is very fascinating. I've been enjoying watching, you know, Blue Origin and SpaceX and, yeah. and some of these players, you know, send stuff up uh, into space. Uh, so talk about uh, when did commercialization start to happen? Yeah. Uh, it was under the Obama administration, right? Or was it not? Well, it's, it's, it's one of these things you can always kind of keep going back and back. So some would say, and this is actually a good example I got when we were starting the company, is they tried to commercialize, commercialize excuse me, space in the early 80s with the space shuttle. Pepsi and Coke had done some work there. I believe Pepsi had actually done some like early manufacturing of absolutely perfect ball bearings. And there was some drug work with, I can't believe quite who, in like the early, you know, 85. So, uh, you know, pre-challenger. So you could kind of say it kind of started there. Now, why did it, it didn't work then? Because you didn't have the miniaturization and automation that we have now. And so everything was very manual and it's hard to do these complex processes with astronauts that you can't be there with. Um, and so that's probably what, what maybe hindered that. And then I think a lot, once Challenger happened, that kind of lost some wind. Um, then you had, you could trace it back to the best I remember of my career, is that under the Bush administration, they started what was, I believe, called COTS, which started the resupply of the space station with commercial companies. And SpaceX and Orbital, then under the Obama administration, they started really the crew program, which is what has gotten a lot of attention lately, which is getting, which is flying crew under, and, and SpaceX has won that. Boeing has a, has a, has something um, working, um, uh, the, the Starliner, which they're, which they're about to deploy. Um, and then there, there's now another cargo vessel uh, called the uh, Star, or uh, the um, Dream Chaser. Um, with Sierra Nevada. So there's a couple of different vehicles there. And that's really on the kind of the space station human spaceflight side. And then on the satellite side, which is where I kind of grew out of, really CubeSats started that commercialization. So those really small satellites, what they found was you can't make them super small. Instead of a tissue box, something, you know, maybe the size of a loaf of bread is the right size. And a number of companies have, have come out of that, that industry and uh, have created kind of these nodes of earth sensing or communications. So satellites are, and you can really only do two things with satellites. You can communicate or you can observe with a satellite. They just basically use high ground. Just think of them as, you know, really tall cell towers. And uh, a number of companies have kind of split the electromagnetic spectrum into different sections. And there's a company called Planet that um, you, I, I knew the team when they were getting started um, that I think photos the entire earth every 24 hours, basically creates a fingerprint of earth company uh there's some doing synthetic aperture radar so you know synthetic aperture radar is great because you don't need you can see through clouds you can see at night all the other stuff like that you know there's really really cool interesting things you can do with that the way to kind of think about it is with the rockets and everything else like that 
The example you could use is really kind of the internet effectively is that you had broadband or dial-up internet in the 90s and the price for which kind of the average American could pay, the only thing you could really do with the internet was maybe basic email or maybe some financial, some data storage, but you really couldn't do anything worthwhile. And then again, there's probably a better metric for this, but you know, in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, the knee and the curve changed and you could stream or you could start to stream, you know, stuff. Or you could really download images. And so then you could build commerce, social, you could build video streaming, you build all these other things on top of the internet broadband infrastructure. And, and the companies now on top of, have been built on top of the back, that backbone are now worth tr- you know, trillions. Um, whereas uh, the telecoms are not worth as, as much. Think of AT&T or, or Verizon or any of these others versus an Amazon or Facebook or Google. And you can use that example. Obviously, the numbers are different, but now that there are more players in space flight, the cost to get this and the opportunities are less. And now you're seeing companies build on top of that infrastructure. And SpaceX is the glowing example of that uh, for a lot of reasons. But you've got these small satellite companies. You've got companies like Axiom uh, who are building commercial space stations and potentially private astronaut missions, all different things, types of things like that. And we, you know, we really see ourselves as one of those companies building on top of that base infrastructure. That's something that Evan and I talk about a lot with software. It's like you can, it's like building blocks. You have yeah. the the base software and you kind of mentioned it there with the internet. Platforms get built on top of the internet and then more plat- yeah. you know, businesses get built on top of those platforms. It seems like that's what's happening with space. Yeah, All yeah. these businesses are coming to space and you're now able to build these wild companies that you wouldn't have even dreamed of right. before these companies existed. So let's kind of dive into what are some of the most innovative and exciting companies that are being built that are yeah. quote unquote space companies? What are some that come to mind when, whenever I say yeah, that? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I just because I, I, I know of them a little bit better, but the planet uh, group doing that imaging of the earth every 24 hours, it's one of those things that doesn't sound like, you know, you know, who cares or why does that matter? But then now you're able to get a fingerprint of like wildfires. I've, I've seen wildfires take out uh, different areas or an amazing one was they had comparisons of when, unfortunately, that uh, explosion happened in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, a couple couple months ago. You could see the day before and the day after and just the, the devastation. And so looking at whether it's from climate, human development, what does that do to human rights? The technologies are going to happen. And then what, how does society kind of respond to that? And so now that we can see, human rights groups can see what, maybe what's happening in a certain area is really interesting. And again, kind of getting that, again, the fingerprint of earth every day is something that it's good to know. Now, what do we do with it? The reusability of, of, of rockets is really interesting. Again, SpaceX in a lot of ways is the kind of crown jewel of that with their Falcon 9 and, and Starship work. The, the Starship stuff that happened just a couple of weeks ago. Is that just, was so fun to watch. Oh my well, gosh. it's, it, you know, it, it's so Crazy. fun to watch from an engineering standpoint, but at the same point, it, uh, you know, just uh, for a lot of people, it's just, it's the thing to make you feel happy about the future. Yeah. Um, now going to Mars and all that other stuff, the technology is progressing, I think is, is amazing. And the fact they did that and then the, the way they've done it and basically just welding stainless steel together. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but welding stainless steel together in tents down in South of Texas, I mean, is really just incredible. So those are really interesting. Um, you know, those, those two really take it right now. It's weird. Obviously not having traveled like most of the world. I really enjoy industry conferences because you get to see what the new things and where people are and stuff like that. So having not done that for over a year, I feel a little bit out of touch. So 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the ones that I've been talking about a lot, and I actually wrote a blog about this just because I think it pertains to Kentucky a lot, is uh, SpaceX's Starlink project. Yeah. So just the fact that, and I'd love to get your opinion on this as well. Yeah. Having the the you know satellite internet Mm -hmm. and having the essentially a blanket of internet across the earth, I think is going to be huge for areas like Kentucky and and rural areas because we've had such a problem getting that broadband internet that they call it the last mile, getting it to the the communities that need it so bad. So my kind of theory or hypothesis that I believe is this is a huge opportunity for Kentucky, rural Kentucky and other rural areas is that it's going to be huge for businesses. It's going to be huge for education, remote work, all of these industries that have kind of been left behind because the internet is, essentially the new land of opportunity yeah. here in 2021. Yeah. Do you see that same thing happening with, you know, all of these companies providing that internet service to rural, rural areas? Is that going to be huge as huge as I think it's going to be for Kentucky? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think so. They've just rolled out some of that stuff in beta. You have to be in like real remote areas right now to get mm-hmm. like a Starlink beta. It seems like it's working. I, I don't know anybody who has it and it's a good, you know, I grew up on a farm, but it was like a mile outside of Bardstown, but we had satellite internet in the mid nineties. Now it went off a geostationary satellite. So your lag time was a lot uh, worse because you're going instead of maybe 300 kilometers out, you're going, I believe 23,000 kilometers out. And so in both ways, so their, their kind of architecture of a high density, low orbit system make, makes a lot of sense. Um, and I do, th- yeah, I mean, I, I think w- what it'll do is it basically is creating almost a moving the internet kind of as a cloud above, above uh, the earth. What's going to be interesting is how, how much that gets regulated in terms of an orbital debris issue, mm. because that's orbital debris, a little bit like, you know, you could draw analogies to climate change is kind of the great tragedy of the commons in the sense that that's not a problem until it's a problem. And What's the effect called when it's a chain of reaction? Yeah, I cannot think of that right now. Yeah, uh, I saw that. But basically, it's exponential yeah. increase in in um, in orbital debris when things hit each other. You know, two satellites. You know, a, a spacecraft is typically going about seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. If you're hitting it a forty five degree angle, you're hitting it Mach twenty five. The Mach, Kessler syndrome. Yeah, the Kessler. Yeah. It's one of those things. Those have happened a couple of times. There have been uh, direct impacts. There were some numbers uh, I had seen, so don't quote me on these, but there was a Russian and an Iridium satellite that collided in like 2010. And then the Chinese shut down a satellite in like 2007. And something like 30% of all debris tracked is like from those two events or something like that. And as I said, you know, it's not a problem till it, till, till it's a problem. Something really hits and then you've got some problems. Aren't they requiring now that when you do send up a satellite, you have to have a way to get it back? They do, but it is when we were launching satellites, it was 25 years. Um, now the set, the last satellite that I worked on um, had a um, was pretty big and didn't weigh a lot, so it, it had a um, it its ballistic coefficient was it came in pretty quick um, because there's still kind of wisp of the atmosphere up until about 500 kilometers, so it came back home pretty quick. So. Yes, I'm very, you know, to your action, to, to your original question, I do think it's great for rural communities. It, it brings kind of an even opportunity, potentially. You mm-hmm. still have to pay. It's still not free. Um, you still got to pay, I believe, a couple hundred dollars for the terminal and then a monthly fee. Um, so uh, it's not like anybody can connect with it with their phones. There's still a there, there's still a fee, but it will expand opportunity, which is great. I, but taking kind of the hat of the space person, if you've got this kind of cloud at a couple hundred kilometers above the earth, just how we deal with that if we're trying to send stuff to the moon or anything else like that. Now for us, 
space tango, you know, we're pretty orbit agnostic. Um, we just need to get again to microgravity. And so all of our stuff would be below um, any of these kind of uh, constellations. Amazon has a competing one. OneWeb is, 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 is doing some work in there. So there's a couple different ones, but, you know, due to the vertical integration, SpaceX really has the, the upper hand. And do they have a major upper hand because of also the fact that they've got the cheapest rockets because they can, I mean, if they own the They're rocket, their own. Yeah. then that's yeah. their advantage because they can launch their own rockets and it's cheaper than somebody has to pay them. Yeah, right. exactly. And they've got the reusability. I mean, there's a lot of effects there. That and make the vertical them. integration that Elon Musk has done continuously throughout his, these different yeah, industries. It's, 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 it's hard, but it, it, it uh, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Let's transition uh, from space to Lexington here locally. Sure. And let's talk about the local community. What's it been like growing a space company in Kentucky? What's been, what, what, what has Kentucky helped you with and what could Kentucky, you know, do better? Yeah, sure. I think the thing I've liked about it is two things. One is it took us a while to figure out who we were. Yeah, I mean, years. It's not like it took three or four months. Um, and if you were in an ex a more traditional accelerator or a more uh, traditional kind of venture area, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. I love, you know, it's it's great networking out there and meeting investors and talking to different founders and operators out there because of just, you know, it's the industry, whether it's who, whatever company. It's the culture. Um, of it's the place. culture. And that's what people talk about. It's, you, you can just learn, you know, incredible amount. But it would have been pushed to figure out, you know, who the hell are you? Um, and it, it took us a while. And it took us a while because... As we talked about, you got to fly to figure out what you can do and what you can't do or what's possible, what's not possible. And that just, you know, when you fly, even flying very frequently, but when you're flying three, six, eight times a year, um, you know, just it takes you a couple of years to figure that out. So I think that was a really good thing was it took, you know, it took time to kind of think of the idea and, and see where it can go. And the other thing I liked about it was you can kind of, you know, for lack of a bit, hide in plain sight. Um, you know, not that we were in stealth and anything else like that, but, um, you didn't get a lot of attention. You could uh, work without distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, you have to have that, uh, you know, the right dynamic of maybe not being in a traditional place, but still having some tie to whether it's Silicon Valley, Boston and life sciences, Austin has a lot, uh, New York, you can go into different areas where, where there is more of a tech scene. And, and like I said, you know, even just having like little pilgrimages every once in a while, are really, really good just to get the, get the feel, what people are talking about, everything else like that. And so. the first point you made where you were talking about, you know, you're able to figure out the model and you're able to take your time with that. Yeah. Was that a comment to the fact that the cost of living and the, the cost of doing business here in Kentucky allowed you to have that runway? I think so. I, I don't know the cost of living, how much I, I go back and forth, how much that is a, that is a, um, that's a, that's a, a factor. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that kind of evens out whether it's, you know, um, you know, uh, you have more resources to capital mm -hmm. in a higher cost place. You've got obviously potentially maybe more talent or more experience in other areas. So I'll go back and forth that the, the cost of living kind of equals itself out. I mean, it's, there's a market there. Like, there's yeah. A market yeah. There's a market, you yeah. know, exactly. I mean, financial firms start typically in the New York area. I know typically people start things in the Bay area technology or, or particularly uh, SaaS companies. I know there's a little bit of distribution now during COVID. We'll see how that settles. Um, so I, I just wonder if that all kind of comes out in the wash. You start air, typically aerospace companies are in the Los Angeles area. I think it'll um, take time to figure out if that comes out in the wash. Yeah, I just don't, I, 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 I go back and forth on that. Like I don't Austin, have a hard answer. Yeah, Austin and Miami are like experiences, experiments kind of going on right now. Yeah. And we'll yeah, see how those play out. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah, and uh, so I got to meet some of your interns at, at lunch the other day. Shout okay. out to, to Chess, Trevor, and, and Jaya. That's right. Um, so that question, just how has it been finding talent here? Are you mostly pulling from UK, or yeah. how has it been finding the employees? You know, it's that, it's been strange. Um, we have, I feel very lucky. We have had, I don't want to say no problem, but we have not had much problem finding talented people. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, we've had people, you know, great people, um, whether it's in engineering or other areas, uh, come to us. And we've hired, you know, we, we have a lot from UK. We have some from Moorhead, some from UVL, some from Emory-Riddle. I'm just trying to think of every, every different place we've had. We've, we've, we've had interns and, and employees. Um, so we've had people move here. We, we hire remote. But we have not really had much of an issue finding people. We have people with space experience or particularly even space station experience. So you want to, and this is with any company, how much do you obviously bringing experienced people, how much do you invest in younger people because of what you're doing is so unique. You want to give them a little bit, kind of mold them into the fashion of the company. Um, so, so that's always a dynamic that we, that we talk about, but knock on wood, haven't had much of an issue and, you know, catch up with a lot of different people. We always really think about, we're kind of really in a, in a, in a, in a phase of kind of rapid expansion. Where do we, where do we bring in more senior people, other things like that to, to help the company grow? Cause as we're growing, Certainly as an engineer, my focus is very much on the product side. That's kind of the goggles. I look at things. People might see it from a financial or a purely management or process. I really look at things of, is the gadget there to, to do something? Um, and as we're growing, I'm you know certainly trying to step away from some of the day-to-day engineering, but, but still stay in more of the strategic, what things do we need to develop in the next year or so? Uh, to do those type of things. What but, kind of engineers are you hiring? Are they electrical, computer? I'm sure it's a mixture, but what, what's, the, uh, yeah, what's their everything. density look like? Or is it a distribution? Of- you, you, could, you could think it's probably, it's a decent amount of Emmys lately. Uh, we're re- really, I'm trying to come up with numbers, maybe 40 mechanical-ish, because there's even subsets of mechanical, uh, 40 electrical, and then probably 20 software, hmm. 20% software. But we've got some people with biomedical, even as I'm talking here, I'm thinking people have other like master's degrees. We need just a combination of mechanical, biomedical, electrical embedded systems, really the, the marrying of both electrical and software. We've got a great t- great group of uh, uh, guys we work with there. Um, so um, really any engineers, yeah. And, 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 you know, scientists, we're really looking to, to, to expand our science group here. You know, we very much started in engineering. We're really trying to build out that science group uh, just with the customers that we're working with and where we see value that microgravity brings. So, so before we get to our, our, our final questions here as we wrap sure. up, I've got three rapid fire questions that are just kind of the nerd in me that, that wants yeah, to sure. answer. No. So the, the first one is, have you met Elon? I've yeah. not met Elon. I, okay. I've been in the same room about this size twice with him. That's close. That that's feel? close enough for me. Uh, it was fun. You I know? view him as an alien, so I'm just wondering, like, if I was in your shoes and I was yeah. in a room with Elon, like, would I just keep looking at him to see what he looks like? And, I mean, he, you know, just normal. Looks normal like what dude. you think. You know, yeah. he's, he's normal, voices. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was a couple of years. You know, I think again, dating the, the the this conversation, I think he became the wealthiest person in the world today. This was a couple. This was probably both times were eight, ten years ago almost. Yeah. So he was not the person he is now. Um, but, uh, no, I haven't, and same with Bezos. I was in a room with him, but that's uh, still pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that was only a couple of years ago. All right. The last, last two, and I'll just rapid fire these two. One, do you call yourself a space entrepreneur? And the last one, are you going to space if you get the opportunity? Yeah. I I don't call myself a space entrepreneur. You should. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think 
When I got started in this, everybody thinks you're lying or, or being, uh, making it up or I'm trying to think of stronger wording I can say on here. So I, I, just, I honestly, I say I'm an engineer and if people ask more, I'll get into it. But I have to say, if you ever met somebody and they opened with that, I, you probably wouldn't have the best opinion. Of so um, I, I don't, I don't go there unless somebody really asks. Um, um, and then would I go to, yeah, I would. Okay. Yeah. So that's the right so answer. Virgin, yeah. Virgin, Galactic, Virgin Galactic, is that how you see it happening or is there? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I certainly cheer for all of them. I think the tourism part is probably the Blue Origin method. Virgin had a recent um, a test that didn't go well, which is why you test. But um, e- either one, once they get them, once they get them certified. Honestly, obviously this is in like a fantasy world. It would be good to do an orbit actually go around the earth and see it mm. instead of just kind of going straight up and seeing. So, so that would be, that would be fun. But yeah, I would, I would certainly go. You know, I've sure. worked, known people who work at SpaceX and worked with those teams and, and the Northrop Grumman teams and others like that, you know, they're really great in, in some of the NASA people, you know, the, the safety and the professionalism, all those groups have, it's, I would have no problem with that. Well, take, take bourbon with you when you go somewhere yeah, in Kentucky, yeah, yeah. take it with you. It depends on which flight. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we always like to end on a forward looking statement here. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about where is Space Tango heading into the future? Yeah. So we've had a couple of things at a corporate level and, 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 and the growth that we've had really give us a, a solid foundation about below us you know we're certainly an early stage company um but the three big things i think we're looking for in in starting in 2021 is really vertically integrate those those applications that we have with some of the partners that we have work with them or either internally develop other of those use cases as we've gotten experience uh the second is kind of a second revision of um our product line. We use these cube labs and these blockers that you see behind us. We've got ideas on what the next generation of that looks like that optimize for the space station supply chain, which is, I've kind of used that phrase a couple of times, but it's basically what I talked about earlier, which is that safety and integration, working with the visiting vehicles, working with the space station, the astronauts. It's kind of optimized for that because there's, whether they're direct costs or not, what you get penalized for. Um, so we want to do that. And then third is really start to think about what does a production supply chain look like? Whether it's using the space station, whether it's using commercial space stations, we have a concept for our own spacecraft that is its own reentry vehicle. Really exploring that, you know, which one? Um, I'm clearly a fan of vertical integration as well. At what point does that make sense? At what point does it? Really, really figure that out. So that was a long answer to the. The, the, the where space thing will go, but it's those kind of three areas. No, it's perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for, yeah. for sitting down with us. Yeah, this well, was one of probably my favorite interviews. I'm just a space geek <laughs> anyway. I've always been interested in well, space. Thank you. So yeah, thank you so I, much and, and good luck to you guys as you continue to grow. Well, and, and I appreciate what you guys are doing with this podcast and getting this out. And nothing like this was, was around a couple of years ago when we were getting this started. So I, I appreciate you guys coming here and, and, and you know, the podcast you all have. <laughs>